Glad, uh, so glad that you're with us this morning uh, for worship and as we uh, t- continue in our series in the book of Hebrews. Uh, today we're going to be looking at chapter 5, uh, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 3, and really all the way down through verse 12, but we're going to uh, only read through verse 3. Let me read that uh, for us right now. Chapter 5, verses 11 through chapter 6, verse 3. About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, when our boys were quite a bit younger, uh, one of our parenting goals uh, was just very basic. And basically, it was to keep our boys from maiming themselves or somebody else until their brains fully developed. Why? Why would that be a goal? Well, uh, they were often found doing something that was seriously life-threatening and yet were completely oblivious to the danger. And, And maybe you can relate to this as parents. Like jumping off of a roof Uh, into a pool while having to cover about eight feet of pool deck before they got to the side of the pool, let alone into the pool. I I happened upon a video of them doing that once. So we were waiting. We were waiting for the moment for them to mature. But you see, the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain responsible for things like reasoning and responsible uh, problem solving, priorities, comprehension, and impulse control. That's big. Impulse control. But unfortunately, it doesn't get fully operational in boys until their mid-20s. So if you have young boys, and one of of our uh, doctors in the audience is saying, more, more, longer. (laughs) So if you're a parent, you can relate. Because one of your goals is to see your kids develop into maturity and into adulthood, right? And so as a spiritual father, the author of our book today... Hebrews, is saying to these Christians, it's time for you to grow up and mature. And he warns them that their immaturity is actually putting them in danger. This is uh, an interesting discourse in the book because he has been talking to us about Jesus as the high priest, which he picks up again in chapter 7. And he has this discourse about immaturity. But actually, this is the main theme of his letter. And so it's really not off target. He's returning to this big idea. He's concerned that their immaturity combined with the pressure they are under from their culture will cause them to fall away from the faith. And while their cultural pressures were much different than our own, we should have a similar concern for ourselves and for the church. We, if we're honest, not only 
perhaps about our own lives, but the broader church, we have a problem with spiritual immaturity combined with a great deal of cultural pressure. So he's warning, and we would be wise to take heed ourselves. He's warning that there is a type of immaturity that can lead to apostasy. That there's a type of immaturity that if you're not careful about, it can lead you to apostasy. And he, he mentions three things. We're going to look at three things in the passage. The concern, the call, and the caution. The concern, the call, and the caution or the warning. But first, the concern. In verses uh, of five or 11 through 14, the first thing he says is they don't listen. Uh, th- like a frustrated father on a road trip, and if you're a father or mother, you have been frustrated on road trips, uh, pulling over the car on, and, and, and saying, I've got to say some stuff. I've had it. I'm going to get some stuff off my chest. That's kind of what's happening in this letter. It's like he's, he's, he's talking about Jesus as high priest, and he pulls over and says, no, wait a minute. I got something to say. You don't listen, he says. You guys don't listen. You're dull, sluggish, and lazy, basically. That's what this, this word means. This is a heart issue. They're slow to hear. They aren't eager to hear the truth and take it to heart. They can hear. They can literally hear, but they're not choosing to listen. It's like a mom driving in the car, and they've got a kid with headphones on, right? And like the, the kid can see that mom is talking, but they don't take the initiative to take off the headphones and actually listen. They can hear fine. They're just choosing not to hear. And today, believers around the world, especially in in modern countries like our own, we have the availability of Scripture like no other time in history. Not only Bibles, but multiple kinds of Bibles. I'm talking about literal physical Bibles. Just talk to Hunter. There's lots of Bibles, and he has most of them. Um, <laughs> and not only that, there are, there are apps that will read the Bible to you. If you don't like reading, literally there are apps that will literally out loud read the Bible to you. There are, app, there are podcasts that literally will take you through the whole Bible in a year or two, and not only that, explain it to you. There's online content like no other time. There's literal Bibles of every sort in every language almost, and, and it is so available to us, and yet... There is a dearth of desire and knowledge of Scripture. What is your appetite for God and His Word right now? Because honestly, it's not just about reading Scripture or studying Scripture or knowing Scripture. Ultimately, about all of this is the desire to know God Himself. This is the actual issue. It's not just information we're talking about. They don't listen. The next thing is they're forgetful. In verse 12, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. He's saying, like, you guys are still drinking from a sippy cup and you're in high school or college. Like, imagine how embarrassing that would be, you know, for someone in in high school to get out their their school lunch and they pull out little bottles of, of Gerber baby food, right? And then start sipping from a, a sippy cup. That's kind of what he's saying is going on here. By now, you should be teachers of the gospel or experts in God's word. But instead, you're not even average. You're not even an average student. The next thing is they lack basic skills. Verse 13 says they are unskilled or inexperienced in the word of righteousness. 
They don't have experiential knowledge of God and his words that would grow them, his word that would grow them up. Um, unskilled, this makes me think of wisdom literature. Like, they're not wise. They aren't living out their faith in wisdom or in a skilled way. He's saying they're passive, still drinking milk, milk out of a sippy cup, and not eating solid food. And the last thing he says about them in his rant is they lack discernment. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment, trained or practiced by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's kind of an athletic analogy. Like to get better at something, you have to practice, right? And it it made me think of the, the world's fastest and most magnificent sport of all time, pickleball. <laughs> and as you know, you know, people make fun of me. I, I, I have played a lot of pickleball. I am not alone. But in, in playing a lot of pickleball, one of the main mistakes that a new person in pickleball makes is not knowing how to distinguish between how, whether a ball is going to stay in or out. It's a very small court. It, it's a small space. And, and you have to be very accurate. And it's, uh, the, the game is actually quite fast at some point where people hit it really hard and really fast. And you have to literally make a decision in the blink of an eye whether the ball is in or out. And the new player makes a mistake constantly of hitting balls that would have been out. And even if you've played quite a bit, that, that's still one of the common mistakes. And the only way to get better at that is to practice and play and play and play. And then you almost begin to intuit whether somebody's going to hit it in or out by the way they swing the racket or the way they, they, how far their arm goes back. Like you can see it before they even touch the ball, in or out. And kind of that's what he's saying. It's like we ought to be so familiar with the Lord and having been so practiced in who he is and his character and his righteousness and what his will is for us that we don't hit out balls, meaning we don't. We don't give ourselves over to evil. He says, you don't know how to even discern what is good or what is evil. And not only that, with regards to experiential knowledge, he's saying, like, you're actually living into evil rather than rejecting it. Instead of living into that which is, into that which is good. So, he's calling them to grow up in their faith. And, and, and this is where I want all of us, myself included, to, t- to take stock of our own lives. There is a, a scary immaturity that can lead you down a bad path. And he's calling us to consider this. Where are you in your own personal journey with Christ? We call it a walk. You walk with God. That your walk of faith Because it's a journey. You're moving from one place to another, from immaturity and infancy into adulthood, into maturity. Not perfection. Something we will never obtain in this life, but a journey nonetheless, making steps more and more into maturity. Where are you on that journey? And I don't want to shame any of us today about this, but it's critical to think about. What is maturity, by the way? How, how would you know if you're actually becoming spiritually mature in Christ in, in the way that the Bible actually defines it? What does maturity actually look like for a Christian? In John 14, Jesus said in verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you, will lo- if you love me, if you actually love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus taught that people who love him will have a desire to obey him. 
And his greatest commandment, if you remember, because he was asked this question more than once, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, right, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so, according to Jesus, it would seem that the mature Christian has not fully arrived because this is a lifelong pursuit, perhaps even an eternal one, to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor to the extent that you love yourself. We're pretty good at loving ourselves. Seeking the good of our neighbor is to the same degree that we're seeking our own flourishing and our own good life. That's what it would seem to mean according to Jesus in its simplest form of what a mature Christian looks like. It, it's, it's Galatians 5. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And the greatest of these is love. But this is a hard issue. And it's so hard. How do you know if you're loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And, and how do you reckon if you're, if you're loving your neighbor more? This is hard. Hard issues are more difficult. And because this is so challenging... We have a tendency as Christians, and it doesn't matter what tribe you're in of Christianity or what tradition of Christianity you're in, there's a tendency to dumb down that definite definition of maturity and ascribe something else to what it means to be mature. Do you know what I mean? Every tribe, every tradition has kind of the house rules of what we think maturity looks like. So for example... Uh, some Christian uh, traditions, Christian experience or spiritual experiences would be the key uh, to, to spiritual maturity. Um, one time at chapel, um, in, when I was in seminary, I went to a great seminary, but they were really big on Christian experience, that, what I'm talking about. Have you had a second work of God's grace in your life? where you love God more. So you become a Christian, but you need a second work of grace where the Holy Spirit comes in and fills you and gives you strength and power. And so after, they had a beautiful tradition within Methodism where they would call you to come forward, not for salvation, which is cool. Uh, you know, some traditions calling the, the new person to come and believe and be baptized. But in the Methodist tradition, they would call Christians to the front in order to come and to repent and have another work of God's grace. And I was moved profoundly after one service and I went forward to just kind of repent and, and get right with God again not for a second work of grace or a third you know I think you need a millionth work of God's grace right every every day we should be but as I went forward some two ladies two young other students that came up to me and said you know you know why are you why are you here I'm, I'm talking to God <laughs> that's why and they said have you ever spoken tongues and I'm like not yet um and they said, would you like to? And I said, I'm, you know, at this time, I said, oh, sure. I want whatever God would have for me. So they prayed over me. I did not receive that experience. They were disappointed. And I was fine. I was like, that's fine. But for them, the way they defined maturity was, if you, if you speak in tongues or have this ecstatic experience, then now you're mature. And that is how some groups define maturity. Other groups define it legalistically with all kinds of rules. Don't go to this. Don't go to that. Don't eat that. Don't eat this. Don't drink that. Don't go to movies. Don't play this game. Play these Christian games, you know, like cards, but with different, you know, you can't play regular cards. You have to use Christian cards. 
And so it's things like, you know, don't drink, cuss, or chew, or date girls that do, right? Yeah. <laughs> Legalistic rule keeping. The next is religious works. You can relate to this, perhaps. Uh, going to mass or to church. church. Like every day. Some people go to mass every day. Praying repetitive prayers. Following the rules. Having a daily devotional. Having a quiet time. Following religious rules. And, and those who do, if you, if you have a quiet time, you read through the Bible in a year, you're mature. You're a mature Christian. Doctrinal knowledge. Uh-oh. Now we're getting close to home. <laughs> now we're getting to our tribe, our tradition. Uh, this is the way our tradition would describe it. When you accept John Calvin into your heart, right? And you, <laughs> you believe in the five points of Calvinism, and maybe you even memorize large parts of the shorter catechism. And that would define you as a mature Christian. Now hear me. Maturity involves experience. Do you know the Lord? It involves doing justice, serving, biblical knowledge, doctrine. But according to Paul, you can have all of those things and it can still count for nothing, he says. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says you can preach like an angel, have all knowledge and know all mysteries, perfect doctrine, have mountain-moving faith, experience, give everything you have to the poor, justice, and even become a martyr. But if you have not love for God in your neighbor, Paul says, you have nothing. So Christianity, it's not a state of perfection, but instead it's a heart disposition that says, I want to know you more, Lord. And I want to love you more. And I want to walk with you in a legitimate, authentic way, which is going to move me to do justice and to love my neighbor and to seek the care of the, the widow and the orphan and the poor, right? And, to, and to, to care about what is righteous and what is good and walk in that which is holy and honors God. Not perfectly. None of us have. But that's what maturity looks like. The concern, next, the call. In verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6, he says something very strange, and to be honest, we're going to need Hunter to fully explain it, and, uh, and it would take a lot longer than we have this morning. But he says in chapter 6, verse 1a, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And then he lists several issues, like uh, faith repentance from dead works and, and faith and washings and all these things. And basically what he's saying is you need to move beyond your catechism class. Each week we send off the fourth and fifth graders in cat, to go to catechism. And they, they talk about uh, what it means to have faith in Jesus, to repent from, from sin, uh, to all these basics. And he's, he's not saying leave those behind. He is instead saying build on those. Work out the implications of, of your faith. Don't just stay on the basics like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I repented of sin. I believe he died on the cross. And then say, hey, everything I need to know I learned in fourth and fifth grade in catechism. And I'm not going to keep working out my faith. So we never graduate from these or forget them. But instead, we, we work them out. We look at the implication. And the thing I want us to see is this. The Christian life is a journey. From spiritual infancy, 
we all start there, to adulthood. And we're, we're meant to actually get to spiritual adulthood. But these Christians have pulled over and stopped. Or even worse, they've, they've gone backwards. They've headed back in the wrong direction. I'll never forget um, what one of my seminary professors said inadvertently one day in a class. And it's just stuck with me forever. It was about marriage. He said, the key to having a great marriage is not found in merely having a commitment to never get divorced. He said, in fact, that almost never works. Just saying, well, we're not going to get divorced, and that's going to keep us from getting divorced. He said, instead, the key is to love and care for one another so well that it would be unfathomable to, have a, to get divorced. And I've seen this. So it really struck me with what he said, and in a moment, I didn't even fully agree with him. Like, hey, are you saying you shouldn't have a commitment to never get divorced? He's saying, yeah, you can have that all day, but it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Because you, if you say, we'll never get divorced, we're committed to never get divorced, but you treat one another with disdain, you will get divorced, even if you live together in the same house. There's a way to have spiritual divorce and emotional divorce and literal divorce. And I can't tell you how many people I've said, we'll never get divorced, get divorced. So what he says is, healthy marriages aren't in danger of divorce, but mediocre ones are. And unhealthy ones are. No matter what their commitments are about divorce. So the warning isn't merely to not become an apostate or an atheist here. The warning is don't have a mediocre relationship with the living God. Uh, Someone who has a vibrant faith who's walking with God, not perfectly, but pursuing him day by day, walking with him, saying, this is sin, this is unrighteous, I have to get this out of my life, I have to talk to somebody about this, I'm going to keep taking one step at a time. That person will not end up apostate, will they? Because that's a healthy walk with God, that's a healthy relationship with the living God. Spiritual trajectory matters. Avoid mediocrity at all costs, he is saying. He's saying that to us. He's saying that to uh, not just individually, but as the church. Avoid mediocrity. And finally, the caution is found in verses 4 through 12 of our passage, which we have not read. But in this section, there is a very serious word of caution about apostasy. And apostasy means to fall away from faith. He says that there really isn't a good way to be restored when you have experienced the heavenly gift and then fall away. That Jesus is so good, he is so profoundly glorious and beautiful and gracious and loving that to taste the heavenly gift, he says, and then to fall away, there really isn't a good way to come back. And you say, are you saying that no one can fall away from the faith and not come back? No, of course it happens. I've seen it many times. But he's warning many more times, because this is like wisdom literature. Many more times, people do not return and take heed. Hebrews says, don't presume that you can put your faith on hold whenever you like and expect to return to a place of faith again whenever you like. Life doesn't work like that. You can't take a break from parenting and expect uh, your relationship with your kids to not suffer. Now, just a second, okay, so that you don't misunderstand me. Some of you 
Never take breaks, and I'm mad at what I mean is like you should take a weekend off, you should get away with your spouse and get away, you should take a week off and get away. What I'm talking about is like you can't go to your kids and go, you know what, getting kind of sick of this, I love you, I'm all for you, but I'm taking three years off and I'll see you in three years, you know, and then and then and then get back and go, hey, how you doing? We're good, right? No, not good. But that's what we do with our faith. Many students go away to college and they're like, you know what? I'm going to take a four-year hiatus. It'll be fine. I'm going to do whatever I like these next four years. And then later when I get married and have kids and that kind of thing, I'll come back to God. Some of you probably did that. Many people do that. But it's dangerous because life doesn't work like that. You can't tell your spouse, like, hey, you know what? I just need to uh, put our relationship on hold for a few years and... I'm going to go do what I want to do. You wait right here. I'll be back. I'll be back, and then we'll just pick right up later. Our choices in life put us on a trajectory. They do. And, and that is what, why true repentance is so important, because true repentance is actually a reversal of trajectories. To repent means to, to stop walking in the life of selfishness that comes completely natural to us because of the fall and to take a new trajectory that says, I want the life of God. I want God's life to be my life. Can someone who is truly in Christ fall away and apostatize? Well, the short answer is no. And, and there, are many, there are many passages that have led me to this position, and I've changed my position on this. I used to say, yes, people can apostatize. A true believer can apostatize. And now I would say, no, someone who's truly in Christ cannot. It's called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And, and we have this confidence because of passages like Romans 8 and John 10 that so beautifully lay this out. We call it the perseverance of the saints, but I think a a better description is the preservation of the saints. And by the way, when I say saints, I mean all of us, not just like St. Paul and St. John and St. Timothy. I mean every common Christian perseveres to the end by faith, but it's more that God preserves us in his grace and his power and his mercy by faith to the end. But I want to contrast what the Bible teaches with a more popular and common theology in our culture called once saved, always saved. And it's it kind of goes like this. Look like, hey, once saved, always saved. And it's the idea that if you ever have prayed a prayer or or asked Jesus into your heart or your life or had some religious experience in a moment, in a moment, and then move on from that moment and don't follow him, you're okay. Because once saved, even if for a few hours, always saved. But that's transactional. (laughs) That's like spiritual fire insurance. And it's not what the Bible talks of at all. Not at all. Pastor J.D. Greer says, Having a faith that endures to the end is evidence that you possess the salvation you could never lose. Not enduring to the end is evidence you never had it to begin with. Saving faith is staying faith. And hear me, though. Our hearts are prone to wander. They are. 
in, in, the, in our confession of faith, the shorter catechism, it, it talks about for a season, people may have great doubts and wander and stray. But ultimately, we must persevere to the end. In Hebrews 6, 9, it says this, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He is concerned that their immaturity, combined with the pressure they are under, will lead them to fall away. And yet he tells them that he believes that they belong to God and that they're in him. Brothers and sisters, we're all, I think, by nature of the culture we live in, struggling with a spiritual immaturity. Even the more mature among us, I think, struggles with this because of the frenetic pace at which we're living and the constant interruptions. It's hard to stay focused on anything that we value in this culture. And from thousands of years ago, God is, through the Holy Spirit, using these words to call us to be careful of this immaturity combined with the pressures that we have in this culture to fall away. Jesus is the heavenly gift. He is God in the flesh. And while we were dead in our sins, he did everything in order that we might be forgiven and loved and safe. Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In light of God's amazing love and grace to us in Jesus, it just would never make sense to divorce him or to put our relationship with him on hold, even though I know many of us have done that. But he's calling us to not. Jesus is so good. He's so preeminent. And and as we make him preeminent in our heart, he's saying, this is what we should do. Keep walking. Never give up. Keep moving. It's not about perfection, but it is about taking one more step. My, my, my wife, Becky, if you know her at all, you know how much she loves to hike. Uh, she likes to hike so much. It's like, it's like my dog loves tennis balls. <laughs> like She just loves it so much. And every year, she does a rim-to-rim hike. Rim-to-rim. Like Some of you, I've, I, know, I have another friend that's done rim-to-rim-to-rim. But every year, she does rim-to-rim. And I've said to her many times, how do you do that? She's like, it's really easy. You just take one more step. And you know, Becky, it's like everything's just so happy and upbeat. It's like, yeah, it's not that hard. Just one more step. And she's like flying in front of everyone else and, you know, as they're trying to keep up with her. Just one more step. She's on to something there. What is a good next step for you? Every one of us in this room, I want you to think about that. You've got to keep moving. It's a journey. Don't fall behind. Keep pursuing Jesus. He's the only, only person in the entire universe that deserves this, this kind of priority in your life. He's that preeminent. What next step is God calling you to take on the road of faith? What is Jesus calling you to do to grow closer to him? Not just activity, not just a righteous duty. How do you love him more and put that into action? This is what he's calling us to consider. Let's pray. Father, we are prone to wander, as the hymnist says. Lord, we can feel it. 
we stray, we retreat, we get sidetracked. By your grace and your mercy, would you preserve us to the end? By your power, not our own. We, we know our power is meaningless. Take us home safely, we beg you. Make us faithful when we're unfaithful. Cause us to love you when we feel like running away and rebelling. And I pray for our hearts, Lord, that from our hearts we would come to know and love you. And that whatever we may be doing or learning or thinking, we would do it because we love you and we want to love our neighbors ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.